This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. Anthony Gardner's involvement with the memorial to 9-11 victims began as a personal quest to honour the memory of his brother who died on September 11th. Over the last two decades, his career has been intertwined with the legacy of 9-11 through his involvement with the 9-11 memorial and museum. Gardner says it's even more important now to keep telling the stories of the victims and survivors and to teach a new generation the history of September 11th. Anthony Gardner is the founder of the September 11th Education Trust. He was also Senior Vice President of Government and Community Affairs with the National September 11th Memorial and Museum. And he is also a member of the One Pulse Foundation Chairman's Ambassadors Council. Anthony, thank you so much for joining me. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you for having me, Matthew. I appreciate your time. Obviously, you've been intimately involved with the work around the 9-11 memorial, work to support victims of that terror attack, and, and that's because of your brother who died on September 11, 2001. I wonder if you could just start out by telling our listeners a little bit about your brother. Oh, I'd, I'd love to. Um, so my brother, his name was Harvey, Harvey Joseph Gardner III. He was 35 years old, and he was my oldest brother. He was 10 years older than me, and in many ways he was like... Uh, a father figure. He helped to raise me. Uh, he was a, an incredible role model, uh, very hardworking, very wise beyond his years for just, you know, his his young age of 35 years old. He loved our country. He was fascinated and so interested in American history. Uh, that was definitely a passion that we both shared uh, and an interest we both shared. And, um, he, uh, the, the night before September 11th, September 10th, uh, 2001, he was watching a documentary on the History Channel on World War II. And it's one of the things that um, I, never, I never forgot over the years because he, he was so interested in our history and so engaged in it. And then, you know, hours later, after he shut off that documentary and went to sleep, he he became a part of that history that he cherished. And so that's always been a motivator for me all these years to make sure that, you know, it started out trying to make sure that Harvey would never be forgotten. Mm-hmm. And then over the years, just get, coming to learn the the stories of, of so many of these individuals, these innocent men, women, and children that were, were murdered on 9-11 you know, their stories, the stories of the, the brave responders who, who rushed into the towers and who responded with so much courage to, to try to save people. And then, of course, the outpouring of unity and shared grief and service is certainly in those first couple of days and weeks and months that followed uh, the attack. So it, you know, started, of course, with an interest in, in preserving Harvey's place in history and uh, and then it just sort of expanded from there to this uh, this recognition about how important 9/11 history is to to all of us. Like we, it's it's our collective story. It's not just the people who lost someone or the people who responded or survived. It's this is a story that belongs to to all of us. We all share a part in in ensuring that it is preserved and told, and that these these lessons are are shared with this generation of students now who for them 9-11 is is not a memory like it is for for many of us it's history and they're learning it as history and so uh it's so important to engage them in this history in a in a very personal way by sharing the stories of you know stories like harvey's of you know an, an, an everyday person who was just you know, going to work, he, he worked in IT, so that's why he was in his office on the mm-hmm. 83rd floor of the North Tower so early that morning. 
and you know he was hardworking and just always had a had an interest in in learning lifelong learning he always strove to be the best version of himself so i i always appreciate any opportunity i have to talk about him and and uh you know to share his story as a way to hopefully inspire uh, other people so what are you thinking about as the nation prepares to mark 20 years since 9/11 well for me it's 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 still hard to get my head around the fact that it's been 20 years i i just you know i have I have three daughters now. My oldest is 18 years old. She just started college a few weeks ago. And, and, you know, my children never knew their uncle in life. I mean, they've, they've come to know him through the stories that we share with them over the years about him and going to the memorial and the museum over the years has been, uh, you know, just part of their childhood. It's, it's a place that they go. They, whether or not they fully sort of comprehend the enormity of it, uh, it's a place where you know they they pay respects to their uncle and and the thousands of others who were killed with him that day. So I think, first off, it's it's hard for me to believe uh, so much time has passed, and yet it's uh, you know the memories of my brother and the way that he inspires our family. It's just as strong as ever. That devotion to him and and making sure that uh, he'll always be remembered. It's um, something that's just the importance of it, I think, increases with the passage of time. You know, we now have a whole generation, like my uh, oldest daughter who started college, you know, they weren't alive on 9-11. And, you know, for them, it's it's history. But it, you know, it's a story that has the power, I think, to, you know, when you think about the way our country responded, the way ordinary people responded with, with compassion in the face of unspeakable tragedy. Uh, We live in a very dark and challenging world. And so I think the more stories we can share uh, that convey, um, you know, that character and that sense of courage and that sense of humility Mm -hmm. uh, that was so evident on 9-11, not just 9-12, on 9-11. I mean, there were people uh, rushing to the towers to save people. There were people within the towers who... um, you know, they were like my brother in his office. He was with 12 of his coworkers, and people were starting to panic. And, the, you know, the one phone call we got through that morning, we could hear him comforting people. They were comforting each other. They were all just so compassionate facing, you know, the such a horrific experience, um, the end of their lives. And yet they, they thought of others. And so I think this this generation, our world in particular, as we continue to live through the pandemic it's it's so important that we remember the and hold on to these examples of of resilience in the face of uh, adversity mm-hmm. now the 9-11 memorial opened um 10 years after the terror attacks in the museum in 2014 looking at them now are they what you envisaged you know as you sort of went through that process of, of helping the designers sort of come up with the design and sort of execute it like is that what you envisaged and, and are people responding to them how you expected they would? Yeah, it, was, it was such a long road to get to where we are today. I mean, it was, it was a very painful process. It was, it was controversial at times. Mm-hmm. And yet uh, I think the, the memorial, the museum, they're, they're such a success, the 9-11 Memorial Museum, I think because of that civic process that shaped their creation. I mean, these were 
years where family members and 9-11 responders and survivors were so active in working towards uh, to inform these designs. And, and one of the things from the, from the earliest days was this recognition of the sanctity of the site, you know, where, where the tower stood and where they came down, where our loved ones lived and where they died. We, we view them as, as sacred ground. And for many of us to this day, um, the World Trade Center site is the final resting place of our loved ones. Our loved ones' remains have never been identified. My mm-hmm. brother Harvey's among the 40% of the victims whose remains have yet to be identified. So for us, everything is the site. And so there was a recognition of that from the earliest days after 9-11, when there was the first conversation and the first sort of uh, exercises around what could we build here to, to make sense of what happened and to properly honor the victim. And so we, we focused on the footprints of the towers. And as we said at the time, we wanted them preserved from bedrock to infinity. Uh, for those of your listeners, you know, old enough to remember, uh, you know, those early years after 9-11 on the annual remembrance ceremony, we would, uh, family members and officials and responders and survivors, we would walk down this massive ramp down seven stories to that bedrock level of the site. And so going there and connecting, uh, standing within the archaeological vestiges of the original Twin Towers, the very footprints or foundations of the building, really resonated with us. And we wanted future generations that followed to have that ability to make that pilgrimage to sacred ground. And so what we have now here 20 years later in the memorial and the museum sort of as a cohesive entity. The memorial recognizes where the tower stood at street level. The names of the victims are inscribed and individuals who were, who perished at the world trade center are recognized there of course, but also those who died aboard flight 93 and those who were killed at the Pentagon. They're all recognized and honored uh, at the 9-11 Memorial Museum in New York. And, and so the, the visitor has that opportunity to pay respects there at street level, you know, within this grove of hundreds of, of swamp white oak trees. So it's a, you hear the rush of the, of the waterfalls cascading down 30 stories into this void that, you know, can never be filled. It's, it's representative of our, of our shared grief and our loss. And then you journey into the museum and you make your way down seven stories down into the bedrock foundations of the original World Trade Center site. And you see the slurry wall, which, which stood the, the attack, the, the force of the collapse of the towers. It did not breach on 9-11. If it had, it, you know, all of lower Manhattan could have potentially been flooded on top of the catastrophic conditions of the towers collapsing within those spaces. Uh, you have the, the footprints of the towers. We learned in those early years that there are uh, what are called box columns, little steel square stubs that are anchored in bedrock, and they perfectly outline and delineate those one-acre footprints of the towers at that bedrock level. And so when you go into the museum and you visit the primary exhibitions in the museum spaces, uh, you know, 70 feet below street level, below the the memorial itself, you are – standing within those footprints, you cross over them. You never, sta- you never step on them because they're, they're sacred relics, just like the strafing marks in the concrete in Pearl Harbor or the battlefields of Gettysburg. And so 20 years later, to 
be able to look back and say that you know, the family members made a real difference in, in, in urging and, and convincing officials to preserve those remnants of the original trade center, those historic remnants, because they create a very powerful setting and experience. And they infuse the museum with a authenticity that I think really, um, and I, I, I saw this firsthand as, a, as somebody who worked at the museum for years and bringing people from all walks of life through those spaces that it, it, it resonates with people. They, there's a recognition that I'm here. I'm where this history occurred. I'm, I'm standing where this history happened Mm -hmm. and I'm part of it. I'm part of that ongoing story. If you're just joining me, my guest is Anthony Gardner. He is the founder of the September 11th educational trust and was also closely involved with the creation of the nine 11, uh, memorial and museum, just back to the controversy which you alluded to just now, and, and you wrote about this on the One Pulse Foundation website a couple of years back um, as part of the uh, Chairman's Ambassadors Council. Uh, you wrote a piece kind of talking about the function of memorials in general and how Orlando's memorial might work. But just you know, back to some of the challenges around creating that 9-11 memorial and, and the museum too, were you sort of expecting that at the start of that? Was that a bit of a learning process as well? Uh, absolutely no... Um no expectation that that was going to be the experience, to be honest. I mean, I was I was just very naive. I was only 25 years old, uh, recently out of college at that point, and I wasn't that um, – while I had a great interest in, in history, I wasn't that civic-minded. Like, I wasn't that active in terms of public policy by mm-hmm. any stretch. And so, you know, those first few months of – becoming a representative of other families and sitting in the room with people like Mayor Giuliani and Governor Pataki, like, and, and their, and their staff, like that was, that was a completely new experience for me. And I think because of the enormity of the events, we, I think many of of our, the family members who were active in those early years, I think we just had a sense that they were going to do the right thing. And, uh, as time went on and we got, you know, started getting further from the, the event itself, there was more con- pragmatic considerations that came into play. When you think about the World Trade Center site, it was a 16-acre site, uh, millions of square feet of office space. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the commercial considerations were, were very important, and they were prioritized, I think, by, by the officials that were leading the efforts. And so what we had to do was help to sort of convince them about the importance of balancing the commemorative with the um, commercial considerations. And we felt very strongly that if the memorial and the museum were done correctly, that they could help sort of serve as a catalyst to help revitalize lower Manhattan. But we were dealing with things like, you know, the original trade center had a path train, uh, you know, subway station that, that intersected and crossed within it. And so how do you restore that and uh, not impede upon the the remnants of the archaeological remnants of the site? And so we worked through uh, the historic preservation review process. We were very active in that process. It lasted many years. And the goal there was to mitigate any adverse effects on that on that history, those resources. And so we were we were able to do that. And so I think my my intention of writing that piece for um, that the One Pulse Foundation shared was, you know, just a sort of lessons learned from our experience that it's it's so important for 
members of the community directly impacted, the family members, the responders, the survivors, to be as active and engaged as they are able to be mm-hmm. in that process, to let their voices be heard. Because at the end of the day, there were so many changes that were made to the memorial uh, as it evolved over the years that we were able to bring about that I think has helped to contribute to the success of the, of the institution. Uh, you know, it's, it's a powerful place of, of, of loss and, and reflection and honor, but it, it, uh, it's also a place that's inspiring for people. It's, you know, they come and they, they, they recall a, a, you know, a part of the 9-11 story of, of unity, national unity and, uh, compassion that, you know, these are timeless lessons that need to be preserved and told through the generations. And they'll, uh, in my opinion, they'll certainly benefit from hearing them. So that was my intention of, with that piece was one to help them to understand that, yes, it's, it's a difficult process. It's not going to be easy, but if our experience in building the 9-11 Memorial Museum in New York city is any indication you'll get there, you know, Mm -hmm. you'll find common ground. And it seems like in the way that this One Pulse Foundation process has evolved is that they they are working towards that. And um, the community has, seems to have been very engaged in the various, you know, the the design competition and providing feedback on those various designs and ultimately led to the design that was selected. And and I think that's a commitment that the foundation, I can't speak on behalf of the One Pulse Foundation, but my sense in, in seeing them in action is that they're very committed uh, to keeping the responder and survivor and, and family member, their community engaged mm-hmm. uh, in their planning efforts. Back to a comment you made at the start of our conversation, just reflecting on the fact that it, it has been 20 years since the since 9-11. That's, that's kind of a hard fact to wrap your head around in some ways, right? I mean, it's a, it's a lifetime uh, in some regards, that, and there are people who haven't experienced it, and that's part of what your foundation does is to make sure that the history of it is taught and that the lives of those people are remembered. Just talk a little bit about uh, what you're doing now to to make sure that, that the history of 9-11 is taught at, at the school level. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the children around the country, uh, it depends on where they live as far as if, the, if they're learning about 9-11, it's, you know, because the education system, system is very decentralized. So it, it really is, depends on the teacher and the particular district if, you know, how much they delve into 9-11. So, the September 11th Education Trust organization that I founded, we created a, a national curriculum, launched that back in 2009. And what we did for the, in commemoration of the 20th anniversary was we, we updated those materials. If you could imagine, you know, our timeline in the original program was 2009. So it doesn't even reference the assassination of bin Laden that happened a few years after that, right? So it's, it, it's a history that is continuing to be written. And so with this 20th anniversary edition that we just uh, launched, it's available through our um, publisher. It's an organization called, uh, website is actually socialstudies.com. And uh, educators can find information on the program there. And they can also access a brand new lesson that we developed this year to teach uh, students about the ongoing 9-11 health impacts. You now have more individuals who've died as a result of 9-11 related illness that they've acquired in the years since 9-11 from their exposure to the toxins on the day or in the aftermath to than those that died 
on the day itself. So this is an ongoing part of the 9-11 story that students really need to understand that this isn't a static historic event that happened 20 years ago. It's, it's still a living event that is affecting and shaping people's lives, and it's affecting the people who came to help others. Uh, so many of those brave responders uh, who, who came to the site to help in the aftermath are, you know, now sick and, and some have died from 9-11 related illnesses. The survivors in the communities uh, around the, in, in lower Manhattan, people who lived or worked or went to school in those areas are succumbing to illnesses. So we felt it was really important for students to learn about that and learn about the advocacy that those survivors and responders, their advocacy work that led to the creation or the um, perpetuation of two federal programs that now support them by providing medical care and monitoring and compensation. So uh, we wanted students to be able to learn about that. Do, do you think there is enough help and assistance or, or enough attention at least being paid to, to those folks who are suffering from the ongoing effects of the cleanup or exposure to toxins? To your point, there is some legislation now, but it, it does seem like it's been a bit of an uphill struggle in some ways to, to get that recognized. One of the things that I had the privilege of working on during my time at the 9-11 Museum was working with responders and survivors to help tell their stories um, and to document their stories within the museum. So while, while I was there, we added a case in Foundation Hall, uh, which is this cathedral-like space that houses the last column, which was the last column removed to mark the end of the nine-month recovery operation at Ground Zero. And, you know, juxtaposed to that column is this case that has artifacts in it, uh, like the key to the city that was um, given to uh, the late firefighter Ray Pfeiffer in recognition of his advocacy to um, advance the Zadroga bills, which, you know, brought about, you know, the creation of the World Trade Center Health Program and extended the Victim Compensation Fund. So, you know, these heroes, you know, their stories need to be told. And like the stories of, of Harvey's and, and so many others that day, uh, the bravery, the compassion that was showed, you know, the, the strength of character that is embodied by the responders and survivors, not only in their response to 9-11, but in the way they came together again as a community in the years after to be there for each other, to fight for the benefits and the resources that they were going to need and their families were going to need. I mean, it, it's an inspiration and, and people need to, to, to learn about it and, um, you know, I know the 9-11 Museum continues their efforts to uh, acquire artifacts and document the story. And we're hoping that students will, you know, be able to learn more, a little bit more about it just through the activities that we released this year through the, uh, the health effects lesson that's available to them and to their teachers. Finally, Anthony, what will you be doing on September 11th? So I will be, just as my family's done every year since 9-11, I will be at the annual uh, remembrance ceremony at the World Trade Center site at the 9-11 Memorial Museum. And like so many families, we have our traditions. You know, some, some families like mine are, you know, they're at the ceremony every year. Others do, you know, have, have a recognition where they do things more in their local communities or, or privately as a family. But for our family, my mom and my brother Mark and, and my wife and, and children over the years, it's always been important for us to be at the site where Harvey was that day. And it's a way 
and the and the marking of the moments of the, you know the timeline of the sequence of the attacks how they unfolded you know you st- you're standing there and the the reading of the names begins uh just after 8:46 after the first observance of the moment the first moment of silence that marks when flight 11 was crashed into the north tower which is the building Harvey was in and so while it's painful every year you you go back and you you know you put yourselves there um you know, we couldn't be with him physically uh, there at the site on on the day of, that these events occurred. But, you know, we, we made a pledge to be there for him um, every anniversary. And so as long as I'm able, that's that's where I'll be. And it's a way for us to honor him and honor all the victims. And the other unique thing about the anniversaries now with the passage of time is that we've built this community with other uh, 9-11 family members and so it's a it's an opportunity to see people and, and reconnect with them and check in and see how people are doing and it's a reunion in some ways and we're there for each other and uh, it's another one of the um, the positive things that that stemmed from such a horrific event uh, is that unity that connection that sense of community uh, that continues to this day 20 years later and I'm sure uh, through the generations of individuals directly impacted will hopefully continue that that tradition. Well, Anthony Gardner is the founder of the September 11th Education Trust. Uh, He was also the Senior Vice President of Government and Community Affairs at the National September 11th Memorial and Museum. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thank you, Matthew. Take care. Up next, U.S. Representative Michael Waltz talks about the American troop withdrawal and the effort to get evacuees resettled in the United States. Intersections back in a minute. This is Intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. President Biden has defended the U.S. troop withdrawal from Afghanistan amid criticism over the chaos of that withdrawal. Among the critics of the Biden administration's handling of the troop withdrawal is Congressman Michael Waltz, a Republican representing Florida's 6th Congressional District and a former Green Beret who served in Afghanistan. Waltz says the administration should have done more to help Afghan nationals who helped the U.S. during the 20-year war and who wanted to leave the country but were unable to get out. Well, you know, there's so many veterans right now that are, are frankly, really struggling. Uh, Gold Star families, uh, even even 9-11 victims with what's happened in Afghanistan over, over the last few months and weeks. Uh, and so first and foremost, I want them to hear me loud and clear that the, their sacrifice and their losses um, were not in vain, uh, that we kept America safe. Uh, an entire generation has grown up without worrying about airplanes flying into buildings or suicide bombers on school buses or Pulse nightclub attacks or San Bernardino-type inspired attacks. So that, that sacrifice, um, again, uh, was not in vain, although many people are very, uh, I think, heartbroken and, and infuriated by what's happened over the last uh, few months. And I, I certainly would put myself in, in that category. Uh, we did not have to leave the way we did. Uh, and I think the message that the entire region in the Middle East has received, and this was conveyed to me recently by a, by an allied ambassador, was that jihad is won. You know, jihad ultimately prevailed and their authoritarian extremism uh, has defeated democracy. And that is an, an extremely hard to swallow. Uh, to see the Taliban and al-Qaeda back in charge, to see us back to where we were in 2001 as we head into this 20th anniversary is, is, is incredibly difficult. 
I wonder, just sort of thinking a little bit further out then, Congressman, does, does it seem to you like we could have American troops back in Afghanistan at some point in the future, if not in the near term? I, it, it amazes me that this is really being asked as a question and not a, a highly likely probability, because we, we just let's just look at what happened in Iraq um, when Obama took us down to zero in 2011. And just a few years later, we had the rise of an ISIS caliphate the size of Indiana, an economy the size of Austria, uh, threatening to overthrow the government in Baghdad, uh, to annihilate the Kurds, launching attacks across Europe and inspiring attacks in the United States. Um, so, yes, uh, and we had to go back to deal with that. Uh, and we lost countless lives uh, across the region and in the United States military because of it. But here's why this will be worse in Afghanistan. When we had to go back to Iraq to deal with that mistake, we had the Kurds to work with on the ground. We had bases in Israel and Turkey and the Gulf, uh, and we had a, a functioning government still in Baghdad. In Afghanistan, we have none of that. We have no bases in the country. Not a single country in the region has agreed to ha uh, host an American base. Our local allies are being hunted down as we speak. We're now going to have to deal with a terrorist army with billions of American equipment, and we have no functioning government to, to work with. So this is a far worse situation, uh, and that blood, uh, I mean, not to be hyperbolic, but I'm sorry, this mistake could have been prevented, and that blood will be on this administration's hands. You don't think the previous administration bears some of the responsibility too, though? Again, uh, I, you know, I, I've stated publicly and made the case privately that I thought the Doha agreement was a mistake, that um, – that the Taliban were never serious about peace and that we're using the talks to buy time and power. However, uh, <laughs> let's look at the list of agreements that the Biden administration had no problem tearing up uh, from it, its predecessor, from Keystone Pipeline to Nord Stream 2 to Iran to Israel, the Remain in Mexico policy. So, you know, once it made this decision, uh, it owns it. Uh, and I, absolutely, I wrote a book. Uh, on the mistakes that we have made from the Bush administration on uh, in, in this war. However, that does not absolve uh, this administration from, from its responsibility. And to say, on the one hand, well, the buck stops with me as, as commander-in-chief, but in the same breath proceed to blame the Afghan government, the Afghan army, the previous administration, uh, I, I think is, is incredibly poor. I wanted to ask too about, and, and this is something that you've you've been very outspoken about too, um, and and we're talking about last year and and probably before that mm. as well. The need to to get the folks out, the interpreters, other people who work closely with the U.S. and their allies in Afghanistan, and provide safe passage to them. Those folks who were able to be evacuated, are they getting the support they need in the United States, or, or getting that support network going to rebuild their lives yeah. here? Yeah. So, I mean, again, this was this isn't a, a partisan issue. Both Republicans and Democrats, uh, almost all of us veterans began in April with letters, with calls to the administration, with press conferences, stating publicly and privately that we had to begin the evacuation then, uh, that we could not withdraw all of our military forces while we still had thousands of Americans and our SIV allies and Afghans that bravely stood with us against extremism at great risk to themselves and their entire families. Uh, and, and it just, frankly, it just fell on deaf ears. The administration didn't even stand up a task force to look at the problem until June. 
Um, and again, this was Republican and Democrat alike. It was actually a Democrat-sponsored bill uh, by my colleague Jason Crow in Colorado that expanded the number of visas and streamlined the process. But you know, to your point on reintegration, that's going to be an, an, a very important part of this process. Uh, we have a number of unaccompanied uh, Afghan children. Uh, my family and, and a, a number of members of my family are offering to uh, to foster these children, to help them integrate. Uh, this is very personal for many of us. These people stood with us and took bullets uh, alongside uh, American soldiers to stand for basic human rights, basic freedoms, freedom of religion, freedoms for women, uh, and, and, and other things that every human being uh, should have, and taking a stand against the worst form of oppressive extremism. So I, I welcome these individuals. Of course, they need to be vetted appropriately. We need to make sure that uh, ISIS, the Taliban, or others have not you know, kind of slipped people into the system. But the vast majority are families and individuals who stood with us at great risk to themselves. Uh, and if anybody deserves to come here, it's them. That was Republican Congressman Michael Waltz, who represents Florida's 6th Congressional District. Up next, Camaraderie Foundation CEO Neftali Rodriguez reflects on the 20 years since 9-11 and the work of supporting veterans with PTSD. We're back in a minute. This is Intersection, I'm Matthew Petty. 9-11 and the withdrawal of US troops from Afghanistan can both be triggering events for veterans suffering from PTSD. That's according to Neftali Rodriguez, who works to help those veterans and their families cope with what he calls the invisible wounds of war. Rodriguez says the ground war in Afghanistan may have ended, but for veterans suffering from PTSD, the struggle is far from over. Neftali Rodriguez is the CEO of the Camaraderie Foundation. The Camaraderie Foundation is a Central Florida nonprofit that helps fund counselling and other support services for members of the armed services and veterans who served post 9-11 and their family members. Rodriguez served in the U.S. Army during Operation Desert Storm in Iraq, and after retiring from the Army, he worked later as a contractor to help train members of the Afghan National Army. Nef Rodriguez, thank you so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Oh, we appreciate being here to be able to talk about our veterans and their needs. Indeed. So this month obviously marks 20 years since the terrorist attack on the World Trade Center and the start of the war in Afghanistan. What are you thinking about as you reflect on 9-11 itself and, and also the impact that that attack had on the United States and the world? Well, it's, it's actually, uh, if, you, if you think about it, you've got people now or young men, young women who enlisted the day the towers were attacked and collapsed, you know, and, and wanted to defend their country. And this weekend, they are now eligible for a 20-year military retirement. So they've now spent an entire military career in a war footing uh, for their entire career. Is this date a challenging time for service members and veterans, and, and can it be kind of like a triggering thing for some of the individuals and families that, that you work with with your nonprofit? Oh, absolutely. And, and there are, are, are many, many triggers uh, for people who've never had PTSD. I, I like to tell them if you've ever driven along and, and you've heard a song and it brought back a happy memory or if you had a smell 
uh, you know, maybe cookies cooking or a cake baking, and it brought back a happy memory of your mom or your grandmom cooking. Uh, you know, that is what happens with PTSD, except it's the negative side of it. It's the nightmares, it's the night terrors, the things, you know, it brings back horrible memories. And so that is just like what a PTSD uh, individual goes through. It's not something that happens, you know, just deliberately. It's just something triggers it. And so we have triggering events could be the 4th of July. It could be a uh, mass shooting like we had in Las Vegas. Uh, it could have been this last weekend that we had in Lakeland. Or, uh, you know, it could just be an anniversary of something that they saw happen, uh, either a suicide bombing in Afghanistan or an IED attack. So all those things trigger the PTSD. And so we're starting to see an increase now, uh, especially since the war is winding down. Uh, well, now it's actually over. Uh, and so the thing that's triggering the young men and young women we're seeing is that for 20 years, they were always told, thank you for your service. You know, you've done a great job. Uh, you know, they got the opposite of what happened to Vietnam veterans when they returned. And now they're being compared to Vietnam veterans. Okay, we've lost the war. You know, and so I tried to tell them, you didn't lose the war any more than the Vietnam veterans did. You know, it, it was, it was, you know, like I like to say, blame the suits, not the boots. You know, you guys did exactly what you were asked to do. But they, they do internalize it. They take it personal because it was a sense of pride. It was a mission for them. And so that is a triggering event for them, too. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could talk in a little more detail, Neff, about the Camaraderie Foundation, how it was formed and, and the kind of work that you all do. Well, it was, it was formed in 2009 by uh, uh, Michael and Marty Waldrop. And Michael was a captain. Uh, serving in Afghanistan and was wounded. And uh, he saw his soldiers when he came back, uh, you know, going through these invisible wounds of war, suffering with them. You know, divorce rate is high. Suicide rates were were going up. And and so he, he felt that there was something that he had to do to help them. And so he and Marty started the organization uh, out of their kitchen. And uh, for the first two years, they started doing, I think the first year they did nine veterans. And so uh, each year we have grown exponentially. Uh, I've, this is my third, I'm starting my third year now uh, with them because uh, I came back out of Afghanistan and retired. And uh, so now I'm, I'm here doing this. Uh, but we are now up to serving 330, 300 veterans in a, in a year. And that's new veterans because we still manage some from the previous year. So at any one time, we could have 500 to 600 uh, veterans in our system. And these are all veterans who've, who've uh, done their service post 9-11. Yes, it is post 9-11. And, and, you know, because Michael was a post 9-11 uh, veteran, that's what we wanted to serve. And because we were so limited on funding, you know, if you just opened it up to everyone, uh, you know, we can barely serve the 9-11 veterans right now. Uh, and so we do want to do that. Uh, and if I can get the funding up to where it needs to be, we will open it up to all the veterans. How much do you need? Like, what's the deficit you're looking at right now? Well, right now, we're we're just basically staying at a, an even plane. Uh, we're serving the 350 that we need to serve. Uh, you know, we're trying to build a, uh, a, uh, a reserve so that we have funds available. 
because it does cycle. You know, at the beginning of the year, our funds are low because we've exhausted them all throughout the year. And then we had to go to that rebuilding phase. And so my intent for this year is to try and level out that that playing field so that we don't have those peaks and valleys. Uh, and to do that, we've created a, uh, a program called the Colonel's Club, where anybody can donate on a recurring uh, monthly basis. And so you can donate, say, $11 in honor of 9-11 or $22 a month in honor of the 22 that commit suicide every day or $5 a month, whatever. Uh, and that will give us a, a foundation to build on. And so that's the goal. That number there makes me pause. 22 suicides a day, that's nationwide? Yes, there's uh, 22 veterans that commit suicide daily. It's one every 65 minutes. And uh, and that's been going on, good grief, since the whole war, just about 22 a day. Uh, and the, the interesting thing about that, there are some people who say, well, it's really 21. Uh, you know, I don't want to quibble with the numbers, but I will tell you that the three top states – that uh, that have the highest population of veterans do not monitor whether the veteran uh, whether the suicide is a veteran or not. So California, Texas, it was Florida. Florida has now passed the law where they are tracking suicides by veteran status, and so we're no longer in that category. But you got the two biggest states, and they they are not tracking. So even without their numbers, you're looking at 22 a day. So it's probably more than that. Uh, that's pretty sobering. And I guess it sort of must reinforce the sense of mission that you have um, leading this organization and, and trying to sort of build it out so you can help more people. Oh, absolutely. This is a mission that's near and dear to my heart. Uh, you know, not because only, uh, you know, I, I served for over 30 years. And so I have a lot of soldiers, uh, a lot that I care about. Uh, but I also have two sons that followed in my footsteps. And my second son uh, was actually hit with two IEDs in Iraq. And so he, he was medically retired. He killed three of his friends in his vehicle. Uh, he has PTSD uh, along with the physical injuries. And so, you know, they, they, they start mixing alcohol or drugs when the medication they get from the VA or their doctor doesn't make that physical and mental pain go away, doesn't ease it. They start mixing and medicating themselves. And so that causes a very bad combination of mixing medication with alcohol. If you're just joining me, my guest is Neff Rodriguez. He's the CEO of the Camaraderie Foundation, which uh, helps veterans and members of the armed services enduring post-traumatic stress disorder. Just on that note, what about attitudes, uh, both within the armed forces, families, and officialdom towards those folks who are suffering with PTSD and, and and what you refer to as the invisible wounds of war. Has, has that changed a lot, do you think, in the last 20 years since the, the start of the, the ground war in Afghanistan? I think it has. I think that the senior leadership uh, realizes, you know, that this is a, a real problem and it has to be addressed. And uh, they, have, they have done things to promote that. Uh, I know Sergeant Major of the Army, uh, Ray Chandler, uh, before he, well, when he was the Sergeant Major, he... Uh, pushed it and admitted, you know, look, guys, you know, I have problems. I've gone and got counseling. And so that was a good, good example to set for the troops because they were able to see, uh, you know, hey, look, Sergeant Major of the Army is going to get counseling. It can't be a bad thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, so it, it did address the tone. The, the, 
the the problem is is that like you had the young man who shot up the church in texas from the air force and uh you know the first thing everybody wanted to do was, was the air force didn't do anything about it they knew he had ptsd why didn't they flag him why didn't they do something you know why did they take away his weapon and so of course the military has to respond to those types of you know views mm -hmm. and so now you have soldiers who don't want to admit that they have problems because the first thing that's going to happen is uh especially if i'm a, a special operator is i'm going to lose my clearance they're going to take away my weapon they're going to take away my stuff so i'm not going to tell anybody i have a problem and so right now we are seeing a 47 percent of our clients are from active duty oh really Yes. So you're saying there's a, it's a bit of a balancing act in terms of like how you approach getting folks to kind of talk about whatever issues they may be dealing with. Well, we have to we have to be very careful. We we are HIPAA compliant, so I cannot report whether they are you know you are seeking mental health. Uh, and and in the same case too, they won't let their families go get help because if you have a wife and a child who are going to seek mental health uh, for PTSD. Uh, then there's, you know, where did it come from? Well, evidently it came from the veteran because it, it does affect the entire family. And so, you know, they don't let their family members because that will give them away as a red flag to their command too. Uh, and so they do like to come to us because of that non, you know, that confidentiality they have. And so we won't report it. We don't. And uh, they can come to us, get the help that they need, get seen, and get taken care of. And so they will go and tell each other uh, by word of mouth, you know, hey, if you need help, go to Camaraderie Foundation. They'll take care of you. And uh, and we do. So what's your advice to people who, who may be dealing with some difficulties, particularly now, uh, you know, reflecting on the, the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan and, you know, marking 20 years since 9-11 um, since as well? I would tell them if it's causing issues for you that you're not capable of handling, then, you know, by all means, please call, please seek assistance, you know, whether it's Camaraderie Foundation or any of the other foundations. And 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 all of the veteran organizations, you know, are, are doing a, a good job of what they do. We all do different things. Uh, you've got, you know, Wounded Warrior that's out there. You've got uh, all these other organizations. The thing that we do well is, number one, uh, we do the entire family unit. Mm -hmm. So we don't just do the veteran. So mom, dad, the caregivers, uh, the wife, the children, if they're not married, we don't care if it's a significant other. Whatever that veteran identifies as his family unit, because they're going to get those secondary and tertiary effects of PTSD from being around the veteran. Mm -hmm. So we will serve them. The other thing that we don't do is we don't worry about their character of discharge. So if you have a bad conduct or a dishonorable discharge, you can't be seen by the VA mm -hmm. because you're, by their definition, you're not a veteran. Um, and so we don't worry about that because what we're finding is that a, young, a lot of young men and women are getting in trouble in the military. They get a bad conduct discharge or a dishonorable discharge. And then we find out that there was an underlying undiagnosed PTSD issue, which caused the behavior that got them put out. Mm -hmm. And now they can't get help for the problem that put them out. Hmm. So it's catch-22. So as long as you served one day post 9-11, we take care of them. You spent a number of years working in Afghanistan uh, with their National Army. What's been going through your mind with respect to the end of the U.S. ground war and, and thinking about some of the Afghan service members that you would have worked with? 
Uh, to be honest with you, I am completely uh, shocked and devastated that it collapsed so quickly. Uh, some, there's some, something happened, and I don't know what it was. Uh, I knew a lot of the general officers. I knew a lot of the, the mid-level officers. And I knew a lot of the low ranks. Uh, I would train 600 to 700 Afghan nationals uh, every 12 weeks. And so we were teaching them how to do infantry tactics. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. I don't know what happened. I don't know why it collapsed so quickly, but there was something there going on. But uh, it's, it's tough to say. I, even I am struggling with this. And so, you know, <laughs> I can understand how the other veterans are, too. Uh, you know, I, I wish they had stand and fought for their country, but I've always believed that we should not be a nation building process because you can't export democracy uh, like you do milk and eggs. It's not a, a tangible product. It's something that people have to want. And, uh, you know, if they don't want it, uh, they're not going to fight for it. Finally, uh, you have a fundraising gala coming up this Saturday. Tell me a little bit about uh, what you're going to be doing there. We have the uh, American Patriot Gala. It, it uh, is for Patriot Day, September 11th. Uh, they've been doing it for, this is the 12th year now. Uh, so they've been doing it uh, for a while. Uh, we will be honoring in, uh, our donors and supporters and uh, recognizing that this is the 20th anniversary. Uh, we have veterans that are going to be there. Uh, that we've asked to come as guests to sit at the tables with the people who are going to be there. And, uh, you know, they'll be able to reflect and talk about their stories. And uh, th it is our big fundraiser for the year. And so we're hoping that it does pull in the funds to help us uh, with the rest of the year and uh, set the tone for next year. You know, with the, the final end of the ground war, at least in Afghanistan, are you anticipating that you're going to be a lot busier in the near term because you're going to have there are going to be more people coming back to Florida and, and needing help for, you know, whatever issues they may be dealing with. Absolutely. That's one of the biggest fears that we have is that, you know, everybody now is like, okay, the war is over, you know, let's go to the next thing and, and just forget about it, you know, because it is over in their mind. Uh, but it, again, like you were just pointing out, you know, the mission for us is just beginning, really, because now you've got all these people coming home with all these thoughts and uh, all these, uh, you know, things that have happened to them and, and the things that they're struggling with. And so they're having a hard time and that's just beginning. And it's not a quick, you never solve or cure PTSD. You just teach them how to manage it and how to cope with it in a positive way, rather than taking those feelings and turn them into a negative way. Cause we, every year, you know, while they were over there, we'd send them care packages of candy and cookies and whatever stuff. You know, and now that they're back home, let's not forget about them. And this is when they really need us, you know, more than cookies and candies. They, they need help. Well, Neftali Rodriguez, CEO of the Camaraderie Foundation. Uh, Nef, thank you so much for your time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Support for Intersection comes from Advent Health and from our listeners. Editorial guidance from Latoya Dennis. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find archived shows on our website, wmfe.org slash intersection. I'm Matthew Petty. Thanks for listening. Thank you.